I'm actually really excited to talk to you because uh, I have so many questions and <laughs> the things that I'm super curious about is I think that uh, your position in, in city structure kind of gives a unique window into what most of us don't understand. You know, like uh, there's like a lot of complexity involved in what a, what a city is and all that. But I think a lot of us can, sit back and watch politics. Um, you know, of course, most of the politics we're watching is on the national scale. But at the same time, we can sit back and look and go, oh, this should be done and this should be this way. But we don't really understand the complexities and like all of the, the work that goes into just keeping a balance between all of the different people that live in a community that you're, I guess uh, the word would be representing. Um, so I, I, that's kind of what I wanted to start in that area, if you're okay talking about that stuff. Sure. So I got a chance to watch a little bit of, There's, you're probably going to be surprised uh, that I found this, but there's a clip that you did, uh, like a half hour interview video on Vimeo with, uh, I think it's Create TV, about seven years ago. And uh, I was watching a little bit of it, and you kind of talked a little bit about this stuff. And you talked about the idea of um, balancing kind of what I just said, balancing the needs of one community or one section of a community with another. And just in normal, you know, conversation, conversational language, how do you even begin to like deal with all of the hundreds and thousands of requests that are made of a city? I think you start by valuing where where each person is when they start to engage the city or they, they bring their issue or their priority to your attention. Um, I, I really believe that successful communities, whether they're cities or other communities, they, they need to be grounded in at first respect uh, and, and really sense of belonging and that people's voices and interests are truly valued um, and that the good ideas for what we should do or what we can do can, can really come from anywhere in our community. Um, I think if there's one theme to my work, it's, it's collaboration and nothing important happens in cities today without a huge amount of collaboration. That means collaboration across sectors, business, government, education, community, collaboration across geography, across different political jurisdictions, collaboration from the, the grassroots up to the, the top officials. So there is a huge amount of complexity in communities, but I think if you do this work, it has to start with valuing and really truly valuing different perspectives uh, different disciplines, um, and just assuming generally there's good intentions that people want to work together to to shape their community and, and make it better for as many people as possible. And on your end, in your day-to-day -day work, what does that look like? How is this stuff coming into you? Is it just uh, emails or the reports coming in with a list of these, these type of things? Generally, um, at my level, I'm, I'm responsible for helping to ensure that different departments and different staff and the partners in the city are kind of clear what the direction is and kind of get us all growing together. So how things come to me is generally projects. Kim, I need you to take on this project, build a team around it figure out what we should do here and, and move it forward. So an example of that might be we're very involved now thinking about the whole future of the Deardon Station area. 
and how that evolves with all this new transit service, new intermodal station, the potential for um, a mixed-use Google development. How are we going to move all of that forward in a way that's good for the economy, for the community, for social equity, for the environment? So sometimes it comes in the form of a of a project or an issue that needs attention. Other times, um, mayor or council or city manager will say, look, we need a strategy or we need an approach in this area. I actually kind of stumbled into city government because I had been a consultant, an economic development consultant for about 14 years. And the city of San Jose decided after the dot-com boom went bust that they needed an economic development strategy. They didn't have one of those. So so I came in and I, I did all the analysis and engagement and working with people to create an economic development strategy. I helped create the city's green vision. Uh, most recently, I helped lead a team that put together the housing crisis action plan. What are we all going to be doing together across all these disciplines and departments to make sure we're, we're building more housing in the right places, you know, at prices people can actually afford. So, yeah, the work comes in uh, comes in different ways, and then of course, like any job, there's the hundreds of emails that, that come in that demand your attention, and I have to figure out: is this something that I need to address, or can I forward it on to to somebody else and, and make sure they they follow up? It seems I was just, I do this habit every day where I journal to kind of keep myself grounded. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I was journaling yesterday was, what is going on with technology? You know, I thought that the promise of technology is that was going to free us more time, but it seems to actually chew up more of our time recently than any other time in my life that I can remember. You know, how do you deal with all of those emails and all of that and and still like feel like you're, you're doing something that's making progress in your job? Honestly, email is, I feel like it's the bane of my existence sometimes. It's something I'm obligated to stay on top of. And it is an important method of communication. But I tell myself and I tell my team here, you know, your job is not to just respond to email. You know, your job is your work and your, your work are initiatives and projects that you personally need to advance. And that requires that you have time to focus and be proactive, do the convening or writing or whatever it is you need to do. So you need to, I, I try to contain my email time, except for like urgent things that pop up on my phone from really key people. <laughs> you know, I, I try to contain it. I try to do it in batches, but I don't let it control my day because I wouldn't be able to have the time and the energy and the creativity to do the things that, that only I can do or that I need to do because of this position that I'm in. But it is, it is so hard. And sometimes I look forward in the future to just not being so tied to the email. And honestly, when I go on vacation, whether it's a couple days or a week, I, I, I really work hard. Um, to get away from the email and the media. It's just really important for my mind and my energy to not be in constant reactive mode. I think it's really important. Do you feel like that that increased as the technology of cell phones has evolved? That, you know, now, now we're expected in some way to be available at every moment? Yeah, I distinctively remember the time when I got my first smartphone that I realized I now need to be tied to this thing for my calendar and the email expectations. And yeah, it was a real turning point. And I think it, I think it's changed our, you know, how our brains function. It's changed how our nervous systems work. It, it, uh, it, it, and I'm not sure it's it, it's healthy. <laughs> um, and so I just think we all need ways to to cope with it. So we try to, you know, not that we have control over everything in our life. We have control over very few things, but we need to find ways to feel like we're in control of our email communication and our, our information intake, I believe. Are there any rituals, um, daily rituals, weekly rituals that you do to kind of keep your headspace clear? I'm an early riser. I really believe I am most lucid in the morning. You know, I, I, I get up at 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock. Um, I walk most mornings. 
I read or I write most mornings. Um, I meditate some mornings. I would like to be a more regular meditator. Um, I, I really believe I need to, to move. I practice yoga and I practice Pilates. Those things are centering for me. Um, and now I'm, I'm, I'm really finding joy in, in music as a way to kind of turn off my brain and, and turn into more emotional, spiritual, communal sides of myself and just sort of settle in. My, I started playing in a Brazilian samba band about a year and a half ago, and it's just bringing me total joy. Did you say playing in it or just playing it? Um, I, I, I'm play in a Brazilian samba band wow. called Loco de Sol. So in my early 50s, I've now taken up drumming and various percussion instruments, and I'm, I'm really into it um, and just absolutely loving the process of having beginner's mind, doing something that is totally new and different, um, learning about a totally different um, culture. It turns out Brazilian music is incredibly rich, not just samba, but a lot of other genres of Brazilian music. And uh, just a terrific, very diverse community of, of people. And I just, I've always loved music. I played music when I was younger, but it's one of those things I, you know, I set aside to focus on other things in my life. And, and I'm returning to it now. It does have definitely a centering and a, a clearing and a, a grounding effect on me. And when you say you played when you were younger, did you play percussion or did you play a different instrument then? No, I played uh, I played piano and I played flute. And I, I always loved music, but uh, I didn't pursue it after college. I mean, I love listening. I love to dance. And even though I'm this... Uh, you could see me. I'm like a skinny white girl from Wisconsin. I've always had this like real great sense and love of African rhythms and Latin rhythms and the music I've been drawn to as an adult has, has, has been, um, I would say, Latin and African and, and world music. And so, no, I've never played um, drums or other percussion instruments, various kinds of shakers or tambourines before. And now I'm now I'm doing it, and I, I love it. And actually, it comes quite naturally, even though I've got I've got a lot to learn. I'm super jealous. I've always been <laughs> fascinated by drums, but I've never actually had the space to the mental space to actually pick it up. I've played guitar for a very long time, but yeah. drums have always fascinated me. I used to tell people that in another life, I think I was a jazz drummer. Yes, me too. <laughs> me too. And and what's interesting to go back to to the mind is I, I can tell, at least with me, to, to, to play freely and to get into the, to the groove and kind of let yourself come out. You, you can't think too much, but you also can't think too little. Right? The, the reason, the minute you start like thinking too much, you know, I goof up and the minute I start spacing out totally. So you have to kind of, you know, get in that, get in that zone. And I think that's, that's, that's kind of that, you know, it's, I don't know if it's mindfulness, it's paying attention, but it's also letting go at the same time. And I think that is where creativity comes out and flow comes out and, you know, and other things in life. And it's, it's definitely true for music, at least, at least when you're a beginner. Yeah, I believe they call that now, they, they refer to that as the flow state. The flow state, yes. I can never I pronounce the guy's that. name who came yes. up with that. Mikhail- <laughs> or something like that. It's a very I, long name. I've known about that flow state for a long time. You pay attention when I when I get in that. And, you know, every Saturday morning now we practice samba music, and we start at nine thirty, and uh, all of a sudden it's one o'clock. I love that feeling. Amazing that that much time has gone by. I think that's <laughs> the definition of flow. That's how these conversations tend to go for me. I'm always a little bit anxious at the beginning. And the next thing that I know, I look down, I'm like, oh, it's, it's been an hour. <laughs> uh, it's interesting what you said earlier about meditation that, you know, you said, uh, I wish that I was more regular with it. I'm, I'm just going to tell you something. Every single person I've talked to that has mentioned meditation says the exact same thing. I know. <laughs> you know, it's good for you. You, <laughs> don't, 
research and it's just really hard to do. So I admire people that do it. I think I'm more just of a moving meditation kind of person. Mm. <laughs> Yoga, uh, dance. So there's actually something called walking meditation, which I've, I've done. With, and so some for me more of a kind of connection between the movement and the center of my mind. But I'm still going to keep track. Sit on the map every morning. <laughs> Yeah, there's something about, uh, I think, maybe our perception as a society of meditation that kind of bleeds into our practice, at least at least for me. I know that when I haven't meditated for a while and I sit down and I try to do it, all my mind starts thinking is, you're not good at this. You're, you're, you're awful. You're, you, you are not a good meditator. Oh, yeah. You begin to judge it. And then now you're, now you're in a different state. I read something recently that I've tried to keep in my mind when I do it now is somebody says when you have a lot of thoughts when you're meditating, it's called an active meditation. There you go. And I was like, I oh, I like that. well at active meditation. <laughs> I'm not so good at the inactive meditation. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, it's been helpful for understanding that spot that I can return to during the day. If I feel myself getting triggered or you know, I feel myself getting anxious, then I know I can I do, do some just do the deep breathing thing. I can get back to that spot that is just calm and uh, and observant and you know, remove myself from the emotion or what might be going on around me. Like in a really crazy community meeting or something like that, <laughs> I've learned over time to be try to be able to get, get to that Zen place and then you, you're able to observe and you're able to know a little bit more intuitively how to, how to handle a situation or, or a person. This has actually come up, uh, community meetings have come up once before. I believe it was when I talked to Ryan Sebastian. Um, I'm not sure if you know him. Yeah, I love Ryan. And he's a great asset to this community. He's a wonderful person and very, uh, just an enjoyable person to chat with. Uh, we we talked about. Have you ever watched the show Parks and Recreation? Yes, I have. <laughs> and he was. I, I'm I'm gonna say it was him because I'm not sure who else this would have come up with. But we were talking about the idea of those community meetings in that show not being too far off from the reality at some time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you when you go to these community meetings, are you leading them? Yeah, I've done different kinds of meetings over my life. Um, I started out, I was an economic development consultant with the Stanford Research Institute and then with a firm I co-founded called Collaborative Economics. And so like that first half, uh, I did a lot of leading and facilitating of meetings. But honestly, they were mostly with, um, I would say, senior executive types from business and higher education and nonprofits. And they were all very just sort of well-behaved in terms of, you know, that was their role to be at the meeting and we were trying to figure some strategy or something out. Um, but now that I've been with the city, yeah, I've had more experience with, um, same with, with task forces, things like the Envision 2040 task force, but I'm, I'm really getting my first <laughs> exposure to really kind of heated community conversations around the future of the Deardong Google project. Um, and in this case, we've, we've hired professional facilitators. You know, there are people that are really skilled at having communities, um, helping communities have constructive dialogues. And then it's a, there's a different role for somebody like myself to play as a listener or as a contributor or leading certain sections of it, but not not being the one that is responsible for for managing the whole meeting. So I really learned that. Yeah, there's a facilitation role, there's a leader role, there's a contributor role, and and part of having a good meeting is everybody being clear what their role is and and isn't. I imagine the person leading. The discussion is it has to have a very unique and generous personality. I can't uh, that when people start arguing, I can't imagine how you begin to even bring that back to some sort of balance and some sort of uh, progressive movement as far as a meeting goes. Yeah, my one of the most 
important mentors in my life was Doug Henson. And Doug was the co-founder of, and the president of Collaborative Economics. I met him when I first came to work at SRI, and uh, he was a really a master facilitator. And he taught me what he calls um, unconditional positive or affirming response. Uh, that no matter what somebody is saying and how they're coming at you, first of all, the key is not like to absorb or push back their, their energy or what they're coming at you with, but to just kind of step aside and say something that's affirming or understanding or like you, like you actually, you hear them and that you can empathize with them. And so I think you're right. People who are skilled facilitators, they're, they're, they're very able to do that in a way that seems natural, that doesn't seem contrived or false, or that starts driving people crazy with like, too much reflective listening can drive people crazy. <laughs> um, there's, there's something to that, um, to that magic of receiving somebody's passion and their ideas and then kind of gently giving it back to them, you know, in a way that makes them feel good about, about, about contributing. Even if you totally, you know, disagree or the group has problems with what they're saying, it, it definitely is an art. That reminds me of what I hear about people who do improv. The, you know, the phrase that they use for improv all the time is yes and. Mm-hmm. Yes and. Always continue to add to it. I like that. It's um, very powerful. That's kind of, I mean, that's, you touched a little bit on what I try to do with this show in the sense that I kind of briefly described in the emails that I don't steer the conversation necessarily. I let it go where it goes, but I want people to have a space to say what they want to say. I don't have to, I'm not here to validate or invalidate anything anybody thinks. I just want people to hear what other people think and how they think. And I I think we need more of that now. We've, We've become this society that has cultivated everything that comes in front of it, that we we only see the things that uh, we want to see. And we now see things that are not inside of that bubble as negatives. You know, like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is a negative. Um, hearing something you don't agree with is a negative. And we've kind of pushed all of that away. So I think it's important to bring that back in and I imagine as a city, it's even more of a struggle to, to do that on the level of government, to make sure that people out there, even though they're frustrated, even though they're upset because of their one individual issue, are still being heard. How do you think that your skills play into that, you know, to be able to facilitate that for people? Well, as you were talking, I was, you know, I was thinking as I've evolved over time, I, I do think there's something about being a leader that's not afraid to show your warts, <laughs> uh, talk about your your failures, about the things that aren't going right in your life. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin, in the Garrison Keeler land and a Scandinavian culture where, you know, all the children were above average and everything was great <laughs> all the time, right? And then also as a young woman, you're, you're sort of raised to be, to be perfect and, and just show those sides of yourselves or those aspects of your life that are, that are great, right? And going well. And I think social media just has, has exacerbated that tendency for, um, people to show only what they want to show and, and for us maybe not to value people's stories of their real life and what's really going on. And a lot of people don't have the opportunity to have their their real story being heard. So I've, I've had people, for example, in my department here say the last couple of years um, they've appreciated my, I think come across maybe more like a real person in terms of, sharing parts of my life or things that I've tried that haven't haven't worked out the way I had intended. Um, that thing about being an authentic leader, you may read about that in leadership books, but it's it's sort of hard when you're supposed to be the confident person at the, at the top to also show um, your vulnerability um, at times. 
And I think that's really important, something I've become a lot more comfortable with. And I do think people are more likely to follow you if they, they, uh, they, if they see you not being afraid to, to share your, to share yourself with them. You know, obviously there's limits on that, but you know, some leaders, it's just like, um, that, that, it's not just about the package and the projection. It's just about who you really are and not having just continuity between who you are as a person and who you are uh, in office. Yeah, there's there seems to be a tendency for at least uh, on the perception of most people to see uh, successful people as to some degree compartmentalized. You know, people mm-hmm. that are in professional or executive positions or in uh, politics in particular uh, as oh, that's just their face. You know, we use that term all the time. That's their public face, and I think that even we're starting to see more of the reality bleed a little bit in the sense that we're starting to see warts on politicians, even sometimes warts that we don't want to see. But I don't think it's bled down to the rest of us quite yet. There's a, there's a, I think uh, there's a strange balance there. You know, like you said, you don't want to show too much. And I think it's the same thing when you look at social media, you know, it's like, yes, I want to be able to tell people I'm having a bad day. But nobody wants to really open up their Facebook app and see nothing but drama. Right. And how, how, as a person, how do you balance that? You know, how do you know when you are, okay, that's, that's a little too much. I'm not going to share that with that person, you know, aside from the, the very obvious things, you know, like the very, very personal stuff. How do you draw that line? I mean, I'm not a natural sharer, so it's not hard for me to draw. I rather have to kind of push myself to um, to talk about my personal life, and I might do it just in the context of a conversation where uh, one of the employees somebody might mention something, and then I'll say, you know, I, that happened to me too. I, I struggled with that for a long time too. Um, just try to connect personally. I, you had mentioned this this disconnect that sometimes can be experienced between who you are as a person and who you are in your work. And I remember when I first came to the Bay Area, my employer at the time sent me to was a conference at the Santa Clara Convention Center. It's all these about women, right, and women's careers and women's leadership. And I was young at that time; I was in my twenties, and I had really, I really struggled to determine what my career path and interests were going to be because I had non-traditional interests. It wasn't an easy lifetime to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. But what I heard from all of these women was that they, they really felt this disconnect between who they were in their personal life and who they had to be when they were in the workplace, what they were passionate about in their personal life, and then what they were that they had the kind of fake passion about uh, in the workplace. And I remember feeling like, God, it really took me a longer time to figure out my path, and I'm still not clear of it. But the one thing I know for sure is that I want and need that kind of integrity. I couldn't imagine having that kind of life. You spend so much time at work. If you're feeling like you have to be excited about things or uh, use skills that you don't like to use, um, or be somebody different than who you really are, that must be incredible pressure and stress and, and just not not good. So I feel very lucky. I think I've tried to avoid that, that discontinuity. It's, everybody's not so lucky. Do you think that that's a unique... Well, obviously, it's, it's not unique in the sense that uh, nobody outside of uh, women experience that, but do you think that's particularly specialized onto women in, in profes- professional opinion, I mean, uh, positions. Uh, for example, I was listening to a conversation yesterday between uh, Dak Shepard and Katie Couric, and <laughs> they were talking about this idea of uh, motherhood being tied into that in some way, that, you know, like, uh, women are meant to feel guilty that they're not home with their children if they're mothers, but then they're also, they kind of feel awful that they're not, pursuing something beyond that 
do you, I mean, do you see a complexity in that relationship being maybe not tied to motherhood that breeds that in society that, that tells us that, you know, women should be feeling uncomfortable at all times because we don't really have a, a standardized place for the professional woman yet? I don't know. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, what I'm what I'm fascinated by now, and maybe it's maybe it's related, maybe it's not, is the the importance of confidence with women. I just I finished reading a book called The Confidence Code. You mentioned Katie Couric. It was it was written by um, two women who were are in media and journalism. Uh, Katie. Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman. And it, it really documents all of the research about how men and women are different when it comes to confidence. And it turns out confidence is a, is a huge part of career success, right? It's not just about competence or, or character, but it's about confidence. And, and, and the bottom line is that they talk about this big confidence gap. And, both men and women can lack confidence, obviously, at certain times, but but women are much less likely to push through their lack of confidence and, and take action. Try something that they might not be 100% qualified for, or try something that they might fail at. There's all these reasons why we, we're more likely to talk ourselves out of taking action than men. And, and the irony is it turns out it's the taking of action and having the experience that actually builds the confidence, right? It gets you in this, this vital cycle. So I, I find myself as somebody who's struggled with confidence um, for a long time, really interested in the difference about how men and women experience confidence or lack of and what that means for that their actions that they, they they take in their in their life so it, it may be that women are less confident in their choices or more likely to ruminate about the choices that they make and so that could be one of the reasons why some women tend to feel like a um, guilty or, or uncomfortable with how the different aspects of their life are, are coming together rather than just saying, look, this is the way it is. This is my life. This is how I'm living it. These are the choices I've made. Moving on. I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting question that you raised. Do you think that, um, I guess uh, there isn't a better way to say it, but that uh, this deficiency in confidence in general for women relates in some way to this perception that if they are too confident, then we start using words like bossy and bitch and stuff like that. We, you know, like a man, when a man's really assertive, we say he's assertive. Or we say he's ballsy or he's gutsy. But when it's a woman, it's always taken to a negative. Do you, do you think that plays into that confidence thing too? I think it does. I mean, I still, I still encourage um, women to be confident and move forward. Um, because they're they're more likely to come across as lacking confidence, which also makes people uncomfortable than being too too confident. But what you say is 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 definitely true. Um, I think it's definitely true as you go up higher in the organization that yeah, men who display confident um, people are more likely to assume, well, he knows what he's talking about. I'm going to follow him because he says it in a very confident way, right? Let's follow him. Whereas yeah, women, if you kind of go over that edge, you, you can be experienced by, by others as uh, bossy or, or, or too confident. I'm sure that's true. So I think as women, we need to be a little bit more um, sophisticated and savvy sometimes about how we display confidence, and whether it's our, you know, our voice or our appearance or what we say or, or how we say it. We, to be effective, we may need to display it um, differently than men? I think that's an, I think that's an interesting question. I think confidence also relates to, at the end of the day, I suspect authenticity and just being comfortable with yourself and who you are and what you have to contribute. And there's a lot of different ways to um, convey that. Good question. And in the time that you've been 
in politics, particularly city politics, have you seen, you know, we've seen it kind of publicly, hopefully, to some degree transformed. Have you seen any of that transformation on that level? Or do you think it's it's either behind or ahead of the times? I mean, I can't speak from my experience in city government and San Jose city government. And it's just been a breath of fresh air in terms of the work environment in, at this particular point in time. Um, we've, we've had a lot of women in senior management, middle management positions in the city of San Jose. I mean, I didn't, I worked in a primarily a, a male dominated field before I went into city government. I was often the only woman in the room. Uh, and, and now it's, it's, I would say even probably a slight majority of our senior leaders on the administration side of the city are women. Um, I think I probably would have had a very different experience if I would have worked in the private sector or, or perhaps in other levels of government. Um, I don't know, but I think I've, one of the reasons I've been able to be successful here is city government is a very, at least the city government is a, is a very good place for for women, uh, women, whether they're um, parents or not, and not a parent. I imagine that there's women play an important role in, in what you're talking about, particularly because the unique perspective that they bring, you know, like there's, uh, like you said, you're not a mother, but there are, there are mothers, there are non-mothers that those are perspectives that a man can't begin to bring into the conversation and the city government from just a little bit we've talked about, it seems very much that it is an ongoing conversation and to not have those perspectives in there and those, those views, I can't imagine how that stilted things before that, that maybe things weren't accomplished because there was no one representing those ideas before. Yeah, I think that's possible, but honestly, I noticed there's this whole next generation of young men that I work with who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s who are really into being fathers, to being great parents, to being great partners, to making sure that they live balanced lives, and, and I think that's a really important change as well. Um, I think the next topic we need to think about in, in city government is is race and ethnicity and um, is it is it a comfortable environment for the beautiful diversity that we have in San Jose, not just inside city government, but um, how we interact with and engage the different cultural communities of San Jose. Um, I feel like um, I don't have that kind of training and perspective to really truly lead in an, in an intercultural world. And um, I wish we had better you know, frameworks and understanding of that. And that's something we're starting to look at, you know, inside city governments. Um, we do have an Office of Immigrant Affairs. Um, we're starting to look at... Um, how do we need to think about race and ethnicity and, and how unintentionally perhaps city operations, city services might affect different groups differently, you know, unintentionally, but to bring more awareness to that. So I think city government is actually a very good place to, to, lead, to lead in that area. Do you think that uh, places like where you grew up where it's more homogeneous, do you think that city government in some way is easier in those places because they don't have to consider all these different perspectives? They can just go, okay, this is, you know, we're all kind of the same, so we just kind of, we like this. Or do you think that it's just a, a perception from, you know, somebody who lives and has lived their whole life in California? You ask very good questions. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think any place has diversity these days. It's probably just a different type of diversity. Um, in California, in the South Bay, our diversity is, is obvious. <laughs> it's food, it's culture, it's people walking down the street, it's it's statistics like 
40% of people in San Jose were born in another country. Um, yeah, I grew up in Wisconsin in the Milwaukee area, and it's easy to say I was very much a majority white European. But interesting, and I knew there was a broader world out there. I also saw a different kind of diversity in that, in that part of the country, they celebrated diversity of different, you know, European backgrounds. Whereas in California, it all gets sort of mushed together. You're all white Europeans, right? In Wisconsin, <laughs> every weekend there was like Polish fest and Irish fest and German fest and Italian fest and uh, all these different uh, Czech and it was just, there was diversity there, even though you, know, you and I flying over might look at it and say it's a very homogenous place. So I, I do think wherever you land, um, I suspect that, that, that leaders and, and good people have appreciation diversity for diversity and are curious about it and, and seek it out, or, or they should. It seems like in the little bit we've, we've chatted that you're just a very open and generous person do you think that that is an important quality to have in the type of work that you do do you think that you need to be able to make a genuine relationship with people kind of and talk freely like you were talking about before do you think that that's important for everyone or just for people in specific roles Yes, great questions. <laughs> I don't know. I I suspect it's open and important for everyone. You know, I, I suspect as you get on with your career, um, it's it's easier for some people to then become more generous and, and generative. I think kind of just rooted in what your life or world view is. I think as I was coming up, I just, I just really believed that the way to contribute to the world, um, is to help others do what they do best, help others make their contribution, help others get into their higher, better self. So if there's ways when you go about your, your work day or your week that you can help other people achieve their potential and really bring what they have to bring and have confidence to bring it fully. But that that's that's the way you can have a tremendous multiplier impact in the world. And ultimately that's the way I think you help yourself and you help your yourself progress and move forward in, in life, whether that's recognition that you're seeking or achievement that you're seeking or impact that you're seeking. None of us do this work alone. And it's by connecting with others. I think at the end of the day, we just have a deep human need for connection. And that can happen in our personal life and our family lives. But if you can help people in work situations, connect to each other, connect to something that's bigger than themselves, and then, you know, have an enjoyable time doing it, That that's gold. And people will keep coming back for more of that. And they will, um, they'll rise, they'll rise to that. And and that, at the end of the day, is like, it's deeply satisfying to me about, about this work, is I care so deeply about the San Jose community, and I love the San Jose community. And if I can help align, you know, a lot of talent and, and energy to move the community forward, um, that's really satisfying. To me. That's what I want to do. And I, I would assume that uh, meditation and yoga and <laughs> and walking are your ways of keeping focused on that. Because I, I can imagine, just like anybody else, those emails and all those communications and everything like that. The minutia starts to become noise, and you kind of start drifting from that focus. Yeah, honestly, there's times I can just feel over overwhelmed with the work, overwhelmed with the complexity. You know, there's um, there's a lot of ambiguity. Nobody's telling you exactly what to do, right? You have to just kind of go into situations, go into projects, and 
and, and figure it out. So, yeah, so I do think those times, somebody said the, the other day, it made so much sense to me. It's not really about managing your time. It's about managing your energy. Aha, I really, really believe that's true. I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you, right? We all do work that is at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's creative work. It, it takes a lot of ourselves. It's got to come from some place and it can be really intense and it can also require, you know, like sustainability for <laughs> a period of time. And time you just got to work really hard. You got to create that thing. So, so we weren't meant just to expend energy, right? We need those, those times, whether it's a few minutes in a day or it's a day on the weekend or it's, you know, the, the, the two week vacation. We need those times where we can recharge our energy and refuel and step back from the situation. And it, it's really true. If you, I really believe um, that ideas and solutions that they need to, to gestate. So if I'm, if I'm working on a, a presentation I know I need to give in mid-November, and I just kind of tuck that away in my, in my brain and, and start thinking about it and like start taking some notes. But, you know, this morning I'm out walking the dog early morning through San Jose State and I all of a sudden this insight just comes up. Okay? <laughs> I run over, I write it down, I'm gonna use that in November, right? So I mean there's there's those times when we're stepping away from the intensity are really important to recharge and then also their ideas will they, they just come up. I'm, I've, I've been reading about um, wanderers and, and walking. There's a whole sort of body of knowledge out there historically about the importance of wandering, whether it's wandering in urban cities, which I love to do, or it's wandering in the countryside. I think people have known since the beginning of time that a lot gets sorted out on a long walk. Yeah, in Australia, they would call it a walkabout. Yes, a walkabout. Go for a walk to find yourself, or um, there's a. I'm not sure if you've you've heard of him. There's a, there's an author by the name of Ryan Holiday, and uh, he talks about going for hour hour and a half long walks. He lives uh, somewhere outside of Austin, I think. So he has this nice country land that he likes to go and just wander and walk. Yes, and, uh, I like the author. Um, you know, Rebecca Solnich. One of her books, which I just picked up, is called A Field Guide to Getting Lost. And I just like love that idea. We need more time to just get lost, right? <laughs> Schedule time where you can go out and just wander and get lost. It, it seems like there's like the almost like for me, there's this addiction, and it's not even an active addiction to you know my device or whatever is on my device. And I find myself having this feeling like, okay, I need to just turn everything off and just sit here in silence. Mm-hmm. And I also find myself pushing that away. Like, not now, though. Not now, though. But then it goes weeks or days before I actually do it. It's, it's, it's a difficult negotiation process because of all these things. I think in some way they've, they've clarified that these things are built to uh, play on our dopamine. You know, they give us fixes. So we're kind of addicted to them. Uh, I think that's true. I also think... I think sometimes there can be fear of being alone with yourself. Um, that, that can be discomforting to some people or to all of us, maybe at, at certain times. I remember a couple of years ago, I, I got interested in this idea of silent meditation. You hear about people that will, I, I, I knew somebody who every year she would go on a week silent meditation. Um, with a, you know, in a group setting up in, up in Marin. And I just became fascinated, like, what happens? What happens if you don't talk to anybody <laughs> and you're silent? And that not, not only is no devices, but no writing, no reading, no nothing. So I, I, I went just as a little adventure. It was silent meditation for beginners. It was just three nights, four days. You actually left your device in your glove compartment, in your car, at the bottom of the hill. Um, and it was scary. I was, you're afraid your brain is going to explode or is you're going to have some episode or you really like, don't know what, what happened. I mean, I'm, I'm an introvert, so I'm generally very comfortable 
thing by myself, but you know, four days, not just by yourself and talking. And it was it was fascinating. It was it was hard. And stuff does come up, which is not a, which is a good thing. But I can just see after three or four days you, you physically start to feel different and you're reminded what life was like before we were tethered to these devices. And it kind of made me want to try it for a week. I've been so tempted to, I've heard about the 10-day meditation too, and I've been like, oh, this 10-day silent retreat, I want to do that. But then it's also terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying, yeah. Interesting wording that you chose there because uh, I've experienced something, I'm an introvert as well, by the way, even though it uh, seems strange because I'm calling people on the phone and interviewing them. But uh, I have that same feeling where when every day I try to walk to the coffee shop that's about 20 minutes from my house and just to get my exercise, make sure at least I'm getting that minimal exercise every day. And typically I'll listen to podcasts, but there was a period of time where I was taking out the headphones and just walking. Mm -hmm. And I had that sensation. You you said similar words right there. It was like, Oh, I'm returning to something. Mm -hmm. You're like, you're, I never felt like I fully got there, but it's almost like, oh, I'm remembering who I used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, for people listening, not necessarily in the sense of becoming a past version of yourself, but remembering a sense of being that existed before all of this. You know, we filled all these empty spaces, and it's a fascinating feeling. It is, it is like it's like a sense of returning, where you're like, oh, that's right, I forgot that. Like we've lost pieces of ourselves and they're slowly filtering back in. I do think, yeah, we've, we've, we've lost this ability to pay attention to ourselves, but we've also lost this ability to pay attention to our environment. Every now and then, if there's a piece of music I'm just dying to hear, I'll put my headphones on when I walk, but I, I generally intentionally walk without headphones because what I'm trying to do is pay attention to the environment around me and see what I notice, what I see, or what I hear, or I'm trying to pay attention to myself, right, to my brain or to my heart. I'm trying to, um, and, and you, all the research shows you cannot pay attention to two things at once, like just cannot. So if, if you have some other stimulus, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be missing out in my view. So so let's not use the blues, that ability to pay attention to our insides and the, and the world's outsides. And I think that plays back into kind of where we started this conversation, this idea of, we were talking about opinions there, but also this idea of we're pushing away, um, we're, we're trying to isolate ourselves into, I like this, you know, like it's, it's, it's easy to understand how it happens. You know, like I have Netflix and Netflix only puts in front of me things that I like because it knows what I've watched Mm -hmm. and our music apps do the same thing and our social media feeds do the same thing. So we do it with our being as well. I find that uh, when I go to a coffee shop to write, I used to put in headphones and, you know, like, okay, I need to put in music so that I can drown out all these other human beings that I've chosen to sit among. But what I really do now is I take out the headphones and I go, what happens happens. Maybe maybe that person talking too loud and that kind of getting on my nerves, maybe that's just part of being alive. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just have to learn to rem- or remember, maybe as we were saying, remember how to deal with that. Remember how to block that out in a way that's also taking it in. Um, you mentioned actually, now that I mentioned reading, you mentioned, or sorry, writing, you mentioned writing earlier. I'm curious, what type of writing do you do? Right now, mostly I, I have to write for work. I, I really believe writing is such an important skill because it's, it's tightly linked to thinking and organizing your thoughts. So I have to write memos that provide recommendations to the city council and then justify and explain those recommendations. Or I have to review and um, edit or provide feedback on other people's memos or other people's 
reports. Um, an example would be um, yesterday I I read a report that Gale Architects did for us about public life in San Jose. Um, the topic I'm very passionate about is, is public life, our, you know, how we come together and interact and hang out as people when we're not at work or we're not at home. So I had to edit and provide feedback on um, this report. This is maybe kind of 80% there. So I find I'm most lucid first thing in the morning. My mind is, is clear in terms of being able to, to think logically. So I tend to write or edit it's like five or six in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. It's... I imagine the wording on those things is uh, the most, you know, we talked about communication before, but we didn't talk about it in the sense of uh, written communication. Mm-hmm. Do those walks in your meditation, you know, you said you have ideas, but does it also help you with, oh, maybe I should say it that way. Maybe that would make this more clear to that person. Definitely. Yeah. I, I really want, city government communication to be clear, you know, just try not to use acronyms and jargon and policy wonks. Be, it should be as accessible as, as possible so people who care about it can read it and understand it. So I think that's like a, a role that I, I play is, is putting it through the, the filter of like a friend of mine or my mom or my neighbor who's just picking this up, you know, read it and um, have, a, have a sense of what's being said. So, yeah, I, I'm always searching for ways to say things better, easier, make language more accessible and direct. And do you have someone that you, you talk through this stuff with sometimes, you know, like your husband or something like, does this sound crazy or does this sound, you know, does this sound right? Oh, yeah, sometimes he gets things to read. <laughs> My close colleague here at uh, City Hall, Nancy Klein, assistant director of economic development, um, she's a soulmate when it comes to uh, ideas and inviting. And we review each other's work and provide a lot of feedback on an ongoing basis. It's great to have somebody like that just on the hall. Do you think that there are perceptions of the public or by the public on what government is like that are just completely invalid that, you know, like people think that uh, maybe for example, they think that it's really easy that, you know, this comes through and you just do it. Do you think there are certain perceptions that maybe are more complex than people realize? Oh, I'm sure people have perceptions of state government, right? Not the obvious ones that, you know, we don't work very hard or we're probably not very bright or we would be in the tech sector if we were really sharp or, or something. I personally get a kick out of bucking people's perceptions of public service, you know, and all day any way that I can. I, I, like I said, I worked in the private sector the first part of my career. And when I came into San Jose city government, I, I was and I'm still just totally impressed the quality of the people that are here with their work ethic, with how much they care. Uh, generally, these are people who have a lot of options, but uh, what they could do with their life, that they're just motivated by service. And I, I think there's, there's a, the dignity in that, um, and I really value that. I think it's it's easy for people to go into certain fields because they think the money is there or the prestige is there. And my whole life, I've uh, I couldn't ever do something just for money or prestige. I realized, you know, I had to know that I was making a difference in the way that I wanted to make a difference. So when you work in city government, you're just surrounded by people generally who want to make a difference and who care about their community. And that's pretty cool. I imagine that the jobs in city government require uh, an extreme amount of creativity, you know, to be able to take this idea of, okay, well, we want to get this done. Okay. How are we going to do that? You know, you have to step outside of the box a lot, I would assume. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, wicked problems, right? Uh, wicked problems are problems that are just really complex, have a lot of dimensions to them. 
no easy solutions and local government is just full of wicked problems, right? Whether it's um, homelessness, um, whether it's environmental stewardship, whether it's the quality of our neighborhoods, whether it's how are we going to get people out of cars and you know onto transit, you know, how are we going to grow this city? Um, how are we going to urbanize? We're in the middle of a of a pretty very significant transition from a city that was intentionally suburban to one that's becoming intentionally more urban. So I, I love to encourage people to go into city government and public service. You can do that when you're just starting out your career. You can do it mid-career. You can do it late-career. There's no shortage of, of wicked problems and um, opportunities. At the end of these, usually I I like to ask people, you've mentioned several books already, so I think I'm going to have a long list from you, but um, what book do you think that I should read next in my quest to learn more and to open myself up? Oh, I'm staring at one right right now in my bookshelf. Um, you said you're an introvert. Have you read Quiet by Susan King? Yes, I love that book. I finally understood myself when I read that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting like you you know we, we all have these um, things that we were told as a kid right that they just stick with us in our heads so mine were probably things like well you're you're too serious or you're too quiet or you're too sensitive or you're too bookish or you're you're too 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 right too responsible <laughs> And and what that book like it took all those things that were probably implied as being negative things that are characteristics of introverts and showed me that those are really beautiful strengths. Right. I just found that very affirming. Um how did you feel about that book? I f- I feel like in the same exact way where you're like, Oh, I'm not weird. <laughs> I'm not it's not just me. That there's a world of people out there that that think and feel the way I do. Yeah. At, at least I, I would say it's maybe hopefully to some degree is different for kids that are growing up now because we're aware of this introvert extrovert thing. But even for me, like, grow. I was born in 1977, so growing up in the 80s, it still wasn't talked about. So everybody still had this perception that we're all supposed to be extroverts. Right. And, you know, it's like, oh, go over there and talk to that person. I don't want to. Why? I, I don't want to. That's not what I do. <laughs> I have an, actually another book to recommend to you that is along the same lines that I think you will enjoy just as much. Uh, it's called The Introvert's Way. Mm. I can't remember the author's name. I think it's Sophie Dembling, but I'm not positive. Mm. Um, and that book, it, it kind of, the quiet is more about the, the strengths of being an introvert. And then Introvert's Way is more about uh, kind of the more personal aspects. Like uh, there's one part in there that I found uh, as a man particularly interesting. Something that I've heard a lot is uh, because I'm an introvert and I'm thinking and I'm looking at things, people Mm -hmm. often describe me as intense. Mm -hmm. And which is not always a good thing, especially (laughs) when dealing with women. You know, you don't want to be too intense uh, because it's scary. Mm -hmm. Uh, but seeing that that is a common trait of introverts for me was really relieving. It's like, oh, okay, once again, I'm not weird. Other people have the same thing. Right, and intense can be focused and curious, right? It's like there's these positive aspects that come with intensity that probably serve you really well. Yeah, I think that uh, for extroverts, it's really difficult for them to understand that intensity because when they have... Um, built up energy, you know, they're thinking about something, it comes out mm-hmm. without, you know, they're not really, uh, oh, I'm choosing to say this. They just say it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how they function. Yeah. And for, for us, it's more like I'm thinking this and I'm, the gears are turning in my head. And I think that frightens people because they're like, what is he thinking? <laughs> <laughs> or what is she thinking? Right. Would you like to tell everybody who you are, what you do? And, uh, I'm not sure if you, since you're in public government, if you want to necessarily plug your social medias, you're welcome to. You can plug anything else you like. Sure. So I'm, I'm Kim Wallace. Um, 
my work is I'm deputy city manager overseeing community and economic development for the city of San Jose. And I'm also the director of the Office of Economic Development. So I get to work on a lot of great things that have to do with business development, cultural development, workforce development, real estate, the future growth of the city. Um, our Twitter handle is SJ Economy. Uh, my personal one is at K Wallach. Oh!